Welcome to the We Are VIP podcast. Each week, your host, Casey Haston, Director of Recruiting at VIP, will bring you valuable insights from thought leaders, introduce you to incredible companies, and bring you tips for landing your dream job from our team of executive recruiters at VIP. And now, Casey Haston. Welcome to the We Are VIP podcast, a podcast devoted to adding value to your career or candidate search, brought to you by VIP. I'm your host, Casey Haston. I'm an executive recruiter, director of recruiting with VIP, and your all around hiring guru. You know, I love so much what I do. I've been doing this for a while now, and there's a reason why I do it. It's because I get to share great influencers and thought leaders with you each week and then I get to share that with my candidates when I have conversations with them every week and I'm prepping them for jobs and if there's a certain skill set that they need I get to dive into this library this trove of information and say go listen to this expert go listen to this expert this has been such a journey and I just you know I think I really felt that after a conversation that I had earlier today with one of our candidates and I realized the value that this podcast really puts out there so without further ado I'd like to welcome Ben Gutman marketing executive educator and author of simply put why clear messages win and how to design them how important could that be in an interview Ben has built ran and sold an award-winning marketing agency. He teaches marketing at the nation's largest business school and has written a book on communication. In between all of that, he consults with startups, leading brands, and government agencies. So I think he's pretty well equipped to talk to us about marketing messages. So welcome to the show today, Ben. Oh, great. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be well, we are so grateful that you're here today. And I think the journey, and I love this, you know, I love talking about connections, how we got connected. So I'd love for you to share with our audience why you and I are sitting here talking today. Oh yeah, Casey. I mean, so we have a cool friend, Michael Shine, who is um, not only just a great person, he is also a fantastic author. And if I have to plug any book besides so he wrote a book called The Hype Handbook, came out about a year ago, two years ago. Uh, and it is not only insightful in terms of, you know, the, the knowledge inside of it, it's also just a plain old good read. It's really interesting, the take on that book, because he really based it off, does he call him con artist? <laughs> um, you know, he might, and, and I, have, I have it on my shelf somewhere over there, so probably go, go pull it. But... Uh, it's like hype artists, con men, um, you know, hucksters, like there's a whole bunch of different uh, adjectives he used to describe the different folks. But it's it's an interesting cast of characters that he profiles in the book. Uh, however, you know, and you, you may not want to base your whole life off of all of those folks, but they're definitely people that you could learn from in terms of how you bring attention to uh, the work that you do. Well, and I love how he took, not to make this all about him, but, you know, shout out to Michael Shine because he is a fabulous individual. And, you know, and it was so funny because and I was talking to you about this before the show. I was like, you know, I received your uh, request on our landing page and you referenced Michael Shine. Well, the first thing I did 
was like, you know, I don't know if you really know Michael Shine. So I emailed Michael Shine and I was like, hey, do you know this guy? He just emailed me. He's releasing a book. And I kid you not, it was like three seconds later, I get an email back and he's like, absolutely great guy. You better have him on your podcast. I was like, yes, sir. <laughs> it's going to happen. So you definitely have a fan in Michael Shine as well. Oh, I love that. Uh, the feel, feeling is definitely mutual. So tell us about you and what you do. Oh, yeah. So I, I, you mentioned a little bit in the intro there. Um, I ran a marketing business years. Uh, I started that almost right out of school, actually, in, in an old professor's basement. We, we slapped our logo on the wall. We worked at the local shop, the local camera shop. Uh, and then by a bit, as time went on, we worked with bigger companies and we hired more employees and we got a bigger office. And eventually, 10 years later, we're working with the NFL and Comcast and I Love New York and all these really great brands. Um, and, you know, at the point, decided to say, do I want to do something else with my life? And, and you know, changed everything. We sold the company uh, about a year ago, about a year and a half ago. And it's been, um, it's been a really fun since then as well. So I wrote the book. I teach at Baruch College here in New York City. And, you know, I, I work on a number of other consulting projects right now too. You know, it, it, okay. So this doesn't really have to do with messaging, but you just said something there that I want to just put a pin in real quick. You talked about, you, you'd achieved all this fame and fortune. And you're like, what else do I want to do? Right? And I think that takes a very mature not only entrepreneur, but anybody at any point in their career, if maybe they're not feeling completely fulfilled to be able to say, what else what might I like to do? How did that feel for you when you asked yourself that question? Oh, it, it was a hard question to answer, right? So we looked at it and said, I ran this business for 10 years. Do I want to run it for the next 10 years is kind of the, the question that was in my mind, in my partner's mind uh, at the time. And we had we didn't have that at all, right? We, we had a good business. We had a great team with us. Uh, our clients were all happy, profitable year ever. It's just one of those things where at 30 something, I had the same job for the past 10 years and none of my peers had the same job for the past 10 years. I had been having this experience and that experience. Um, and it was, it, it felt like it was the right time to try to find a good land for that team. Um, and personally begin to explore, you know, other uh, opportunities. Well, and, and I think the point I want to make here is that you gave yourself grace to do that, that you didn't say like, oh my God, who am I? I'm throwing away all this success. You said, no, I had the success. I'm going to sell this and I'm going to go do something else. And I'm going to have success there too. So many people don't give themselves permission. They think they have to be in that one career for their entire life. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, life is long, right? It's the longest thing you'll ever do. <laughs> so uh, I look at it that way as, as was it a great experience? I have, I have no regrets. I, I package it up, put a little bow on it, stick it on the shelf. And there's, uh, there's other things to accomplish now. I love that. So I know mo most of your work or much of your work revolves around the uh, critical aspect of messaging. And that's just, and I think that's so important. Um, so your extensive experience managing a marketing agency, your role as an educator in marketing, messaging plays a pivotal role in influencing everything we do. So could you share a little bit about your insights with us about, you know, 
why understanding and mastering the art of messaging is of the utmost importance. And then I want to talk to you about a book I read. Absolutely. So uh, market happens to be the industry, you know, those are the people you give a call to when you have a communications problem, when you have something that you want to say, but all of us are marketers in many ways, all of us have some change we want to see in the world if we're advocates or educators if we are business leaders if we're recruiters if we're teachers all of us have some sort of um, desire to influence to persuade to just inform that in many ways and so it is it is the fundamental um, kind of the fundamental challenge that we have as humans with how do we how do we connect with what we are feeling and you know, in our own uh, hearts and our own minds uh, with other people. And marketing just so happens to be the capitalist version of that, right? Where we, we end up connecting, um, you know, people who, who make things and have things, people who, who need things and want things. C communication, um, it's, if you do it poorly, is, is a, a big problem, right? So poor communication is the number one cause of divorce, poor communication is number one cause of aviation accidents, number one cause of uh, healthcare um, mistakes. It's number one. It's, it costs billions and billions of dollars on, on company balance sheets every year. There's it, when, you know, when we communicate, we can do great things, but when we fail, so there's also is really a cost. So I just heard a keynote speaker yesterday at Success North Dallas. And he said something that I thought was amazing when it comes to communication. And he was talking about how he communicates with his wife. And he said, so many times when we come out and we say, you're telling me this, or you did this, it, it seems very accusatory. And so mm -hmm. they always start their sentences with, in my head, this is what I heard you say. Isn't that mm -hmm. great? That's great. Um, that reminds me of something I, I talk about um, a, a lot, which is if we break down all of the, the different ways which we communicate and we strip away everything, right? If you're an advertiser, if you're uh, an advocate, whatever it is, so call yourself. And on the other side, there's the receiver, right? That's the voter, the buyer, the donor, the student. That's the receiver. The, the, there's senders and the receivers, and we're trying to get something across across the divide between them. Uh, the most important mindset shift that you can make in terms of being an effective communicator is to understand that just as if you were mailing a physical letter, the sender is responsible for the literal uh, cost of up today with a thousand other things in their mind they they have they care about their family and their friends and their sports teams and they care about all these different things they have deadlines and vacations ben. your message was not necessarily one of them and can, so can the, we go back uh, for just one second so, can you yeah. hear me? because you did freeze for just a second and i just really was like hanging on every word you were saying there so you were talking about remember the cost is on the sender so can we back yes. up to that point real quick Okay, um, so I just, I'll, I can start that little whole answer again, if that, that, if that would, would be the best. Okay. Um, so the most important mindset shift that we can make when it comes to communication, and I talk about this a lot, is when we strip away everything, 
when we say that it's not about you know being an advertiser or being a leader or being an entrepreneur, the senders and there's receivers. The receivers can be the voters or the buyers or the donors. There is the single act of communication trying to get something from that sender to the receiver. And just as if you were sending a letter in the mail, the sender is responsible for the literal and metaphorical cost of the communication. It's your responsibility as the sender to make sure that you're heard. And receivers woke up today with so many things that they cared about. They care about their friends and their family and their work and their vacation and their sports teams, but they didn't care about what you had to say. Nobody woke up today saying, my to-do list is to click on or open a spam email or read your, your uh, presentation. We care about a lot of things, but it's important for us to, as senders to have to it's our responsibility to make sure that we communicate, that we are heard. I think that is so important. And I've never really thought about it that way because I always thought communication was a two-way street, right? But I, I think that that makes a lot of sense that the onus would be on the sender. And you know, I one of my favorite phrases is, you don't know what you don't know about what the other person is going through. So you don't know where their headset is or mindset is. You don't know where their head frame is, what they might be dealing with that day when you have a response to them or when you say something to them. So I think it's really important that we remember that when we're communicating. And again, I kind of go back to that, you know, this is what I, in my head, this is what I heard. I think that would solve so many problems because then you'd be like, but that's not oh, what absolutely. I said at all, yeah. you know? You know, this is what I actually meant to say. You know, that's something interesting. Like when I have, when I'm coaching my candidates on interviewing skills, one of the questions I have them to ask, and it takes a pretty brave person to ask this question, believe it or not, is that one of the last questions at the end of the interview, is there anything you see missing in my experience that would keep me from getting this job? Mm. But the reason I have them ask that question, that. yeah, the reason I have them ask that question is because you may have just left something off your resume. Yep, a hundred percent. And and uh, I I have always found even if you kind of the part of it and you look at the professional services piece, uh, I was just helping a client uh, interview vendors and and I asked a, a very similar uh, piece as kind of helping the the client there. Um, I, I've turned it on his head a little bit. I said, well, what are we doing wrong? What do you think is the uh, thing we're missing as part of this project, uh, as part of this RFP? It, it breaks people out of their mold of kind of just being in that bubble thing I had to say, and, and it allows, allows us to tap into their expertise as well. Absolutely. So the book I wanted to mention to you um, was a book by the name of Smart Brevity. Have you heard that, heard of, read that book? I read Smart Brevity, yeah. So, and I wonder like compared to your messaging, compared to the way they message, which I think is really good. I've actually revised a lot of my email marketing because of that book. Um, how do you think those two compare? So Smart Brevity, uh, there's a lot of great stuff in there. It's a much more of a like copy manual, like formatting uh, guide than it is um, kind of about like the science of communication. I tried to cover as much as I can in my book, the the why and uh, how the, the why and the how instead of just like the what in there. So uh, the, there's there, the foundational kind of scientific cognitive science piece of this book uh, revolves around the idea of fluency. 
And so the fluency is this word that you and I know, right? Like we can be fluent in English, uh, fluent in chess or cooking, but where we're fluent, things are easy. That's effectively what it means. That's the Latin root of the word is flowing, actually. So if you ask a cognitive scientist about the word fluency, though, they, what they mean by it is how easy is it for you to take something from out in the world, stick it in your head and make sense of it? And how, we, how, much, how much kind of mental processing power do you have to do on there? And if it takes a lot of work to perceive and process something, well, we don't like that. It's associated of all the bad things, right? We don't like it, we don't buy it, we don't trust it. But if something is easy, if it, if it flows, well, we're likely to, we're likely to, more likely to like. And that's all the stuff we want as a communicator, right? So, so that, that is what we're trying to achieve uh, when we talk about communications, is really achieving the state of fluency. Well, it sounds to me like, just based on what you just said, that those two, two methods are complementary. Because you've got to have that fluency, you've got to have that communication, mm -hmm. but you need the format, the structure on, on how you communicate as well. So I think that's very interesting. I wanted to ask you about a particular chapter in your book, and we had talked about this in our pre-interview, but this is one that I thought would be really good to touch on because some people might not like it, like the way you refer to it. So talk to me about the enlightened idiot. <laughs> so the enlightened idiot is, uh, is code for everybody else. It's somebody who is your somebody who is not in the room is not in your bubble. Um, we have a really bad habit of overestimating how much we have in common with everybody else. Uh, we are, we believe that everybody uses the same language, that everybody uses this understanding the acronym we're talking about, they understand the jargon we're using. And they understand also the motivations and the emotions that we have in our preferences. But when, when, again, when researchers look at this, they find over and over again that we are not as good at what other people think, feel, want as we think we are. And so what you have to do is you have to welcome in. I use the enlightened idiot as, as kind, of, kind of big people out of it. But idiot is meant... It's kind of a term of endearment. It means the common man. It means the everyman. What we want to have is we want to bring in our audience. It, this is the most kind of no-duh tactic I, I put in the whole book, which is go talk to your audience and test your message on them. But it's all going to be the one that I think most people are going to ignore because talking to your audience, going out there and testing things can be really kind of painful. It can be kind of awkward. I remember, you know, standing on the concourse at Grand Central Terminal trying to flag people down to, to test something once. Uh, really awkward the first couple of times you do it, right? And then eventually you get a little bit better and you get a little better and then it becomes second nature, right? But so we're awkward about it, but we also, more so than that, is that we're scared that we, we might get feedback that we don't like. It might be negative. And so that, that prevents a lot of us from actually taking advantage of the really basic tool. You know, I'm so glad you said that because one of the hardest things I think that I have found after becoming a speaker, um, and, and I know these people love me and they're just trying to help me, but then they give me critical feedback and I'm like, well, I don't do that. I don't say, uh, 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 that much, you know, or whatever it is that they're, and it's really good feedback. But you know, one thing that I think probably the best piece of advice I ever got was from one of our mentors. And he said, here's what I want you to do, Casey. And this is when I first started speaking. He goes, go back 
and I want you to watch your speaking engagement three times, but I want you to do it differently each time. The first time, I want you to go and just listen. The second time, mm -hmm. I want you to go through it and just watch, don't listen. And then the third time, I want you to watch and listen. And I was like, I love that. That's isn't great. that great? I mean, do I no. do it every time? No. Who has time to watch themselves speak three times, right? <laughs> but but <laughs> I did it when I first started a couple few times. And it's really interesting when you watch to make sure that your, you know, facial expressions and your emotions and your, you know, gestures are matching what you're saying. So it was really oh, yeah. interesting. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think that's that's really good. And and that um, is is kind of a good shortcut. If sometimes you can't get every, you know, you can't get the feedback from everybody else, but you can get your own feedback, kind of edge dimensions of time and space a little bit, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, the other couple of things, so you had some subchapters in that particular, can you tell I like that chapter um, that I wanted <laughs> to talk about? And so one of them is the case for simplicity. Talk to us a little bit about what that is. Um, so the, the arguments in favor of simplicity, there's a few of them. So, uh, one of them that I always like to bring when we talk about this, so simplicity is effective, right? Just before we get to anything, uh, it is, it is something that when you look at, a, um, you talked about the science piece, but if you look at the dollars and cents of this, uh, brands that are simpler campaigns that are simpler, sell more stuff, right? Like that's what we want to do a lot of times when we're putting hat on. That's one piece of it. Um, it's also, I think, the most interesting piece. It, that is kind. There's a different kind of nice. Um, nice means that kind of you care about this surface level piece of it. You care about the decorum, the politeness, you care about the thing. And nothing is necessarily wrong with being nice, but if you can only be one, it's more important to be kind because kind cares about the, cares about the outcomes, the well-being of your receiver. Uh, there's an example I use in there where uh, look at signs. Uh, they're back here uh, in New York in the 80s, there was a mayor, Ed Koch, uh, and he had a street sign uh, for no parking. So don't even think about parking here. Right? Don't even think, and that's, that's not a very nice sign, but it's certainly a kind sign, right? You immediately understand what the message is because you care about the well-being of it. That's much more effective, much simpler of a sign than those big kind of Byzantine signs saying no parking Monday for Thursday this time. That is nice, but that's not necessarily kind. Interesting. I never really thought about signs being nice or kind. <laughs> and I'm sure there's some science behind that. And then also the next one is, you know, the crime of complicated. Oh yeah. So. Uh, complicated, I, I kind of have this indictment against it here, but there's different, uh, one of them is that, uh, first of all, let's, let's, the, you know, kind of draw the line. What is complicated? So there's complexity and there's complication. I, I say that if you look at the spectrum, simple is over here and complex is over here. There, there this complicated is when you artificially make something complex. It's when you take something that could be simple and instead of doing the work to get there, you take the easy route and you, and you make it complicated and you make it complex. It was artificially completed, artificially uh, created complexity. So that is the, um, that's kind of where we're, we're defining the word complicated in terms of what the three sins are for it. Number one is that it's selfish. Um, 
complicated messages are by their nature self-serving they're used oftentimes maybe if you look at like an end user license agreement like a software agreement it's used often to kind of hide intent your your intentions that you now is kind of on the front page of the new york times right uh, all sorts of things all sorts of legalese they're used more so to kind of obfuscate than uh, to communicate kind uh, uh sorry uh, cops are cowardly i mean we there's a large body of research, but the thing is, a lot of it's very interesting, that shows that we complicate when we're afraid that we won't measure up, that we don't meet the level which we want 